from Good Travel and New Zealand Awaits, we're Josie Major and Debbie Clark. Welcome to Good Awaits, the Regenerative Tourism New Zealand podcast. Under the shadow of the global pandemic and climate crisis, tourism is facing enormous uncertainty and returning to business as usual is no longer an option. Our people and planet are relying on us to reconnect and reimagine. The Good Awaits podcast is a platform for the collective discovery of a new way forward. It's great to have you join us on this journey. Kia ora, ko Debbie toku ingoa. I'm Debbie Clark, founder and owner of New Zealand Awaits. Kia ora, ko Josie toku ingoa. I'm Josie Major, New Zealand Programs Manager for Good Travel. Welcome back to the Good Awaits podcast. Today we are very excited to welcome Michelle Holiday onto the podcast. For the past two decades, Michelle Holiday has inspired with her thought leadership and vision. As a writer, presenter, facilitator and researcher, her work centres around thrivability, a set of perspectives and practices based on a view of organisations and communities as dynamic living systems. To that end, she brings people together and helps them discover ways that they can feel more alive, connect more meaningfully with each other, and serve life more powerfully and effectively through their work. Her research and experience are brought together in the highly acclaimed book, The Age of Thrivability, Vital Perspectives and Practices for a Better World. Michelle spent the first part of her career in brand strategy. The second part of her career focused on employee engagement and now she combines both disciplines, accompanying a community of pioneering and purpose-driven clients. With a master's degree in international marketing and a bachelor's degree in Russian studies, Michelle has lived in 19 cities around the world. She now lives in Montreal with her husband and two children. It was such a pleasure to be able to have Michelle on the podcast. She laid out this idea of dynamic living systems in such a way that I really think will be helpful for listeners to start to see tourism as a living system. So we hope you find this episode enlivening and that it sparks conversations for you and your community. We invite you to consciously listen and engage with what resonates with you. Kia Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Kia ora. Welcome. So this is a regenerative tourism podcast, Michelle. And so obviously we're talking about travel and tourism. So we'd like to start off um, just talking about first, what was a memorable travel experience for you that you can remember that was quite impactful on you? Mm-hmm. Great question. Two things come to mind. First, uh, I, I'm originally from the United States and I moved as a 12-year-old to a small town in Scotland. My stepfather was in the Navy and there used to be a submarine base in Scotland, a U.S. submarine base. So we moved there and that was quite a different world from my experience growing up in the U.S. And in particular, this was where I first came to understand that um, Americans are not universally admired <laughs> and loved. And, and so even at a really young age, I sort of took in the idea that I should be an ambassador, that I should counteract the stereotypes 
I was always very aware of this. And um, the, the other thing that comes to mind is um, that I, I ended up studying Russian in, uh, in university. And so at something like age 17, I, I went to Russia as an exchange student for a summer. And I had grown up in the Cold War and uh, had been told all along that Russia was the enemy and, and everyone was bad there. And, and I just always thought it can't be true that everyone is bad. And so in that, that first exchange experience, the, the first day that I was there, I first slept forever and then um, woke up, took a shower and wanted to go out. And the, the mother of this family wouldn't let me go out with wet hair and in fact picked up a hairdryer and dried my hair for me. And I thought, I knew it. I knew it. There's just mothers everywhere. <laughs> my two stories. That's great. I love that mother's universal. Great, great. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Obviously now you're, you're well known for your work and uh, this living systems theory and, and thrivability. And we'd really love you to talk to how you kind of ended up there. Like what was your, what was your path to end up? interested in in this type of work. Okay. So I didn't start out my career with this focus. I first worked in marketing and brand strategy for big multinational companies. And and that's where I started to get really disillusioned. The way our society approaches the, the relationship with customers, customer engagement, it seemed really superficial and manipulative. And, and I thought there, there must be a better way. There must be something more to it, but no one else seemed to see what I saw or no one around me anyway. So I decided to leave marketing and I went instead into employee engagement and organizational culture. That was another thing that, that struck me as just odd in these big corporations that I worked at. So this work in organizational culture and employee engagement felt better, but Still, the the leaders that I worked with had a a really familiar, superficial, and manipulative approach to engaging employees. And around the same time, the sustainability movement was uh, growing in in awareness. And I I just had the sense that all of it was related, that all of it had to do with the underlying story we have about how the world works, and that that story tells us it's all one big machine. It's our organizations are separate from us. Um, we're, we exist to compete and consume. And I, I just thought there has to be more. There has to be more to that story. So I went in search of the, the rest of the story. My intuition was that there must also be life. There must also be the human spirit. And I wanted to figure out what do I mean by that anyway? And what does it mean for there to be life, for an organization somehow to be alive or a community somehow to be alive? And actually, here was another memorable travel story. My husband got transferred with his work to Paris for a year and a half. I went with him and I didn't have a work permit, which kind of suited me just fine. A year and a half of leisure in Paris (laughs) was wonderful. (laughs) So I I decided to use that time to follow my intuition and, and do research, independent research into biology to understand what does it take for something that's alive to thrive? And do we find those same conditions or patterns in our organizations, in our communities, in our economies? And and we do. I I discovered a a core set of patterns that are common to all of them. And so I went further into my research to develop a framework for uh, organizations and communities specifically using these patterns and conditions that are common to all living systems. So that was 
2001 and 2002, and I've been working ever since with, with those patterns. And so I know I've read your book, The Age of Thrivability, and it speaks to all of us. Um, it's a fantastic read. So I think it would be great if you could, for our listeners, really talk about what thrivability is. You talk about these patterns and conditions, right, for life to thrive. It's a big question in a podcast to try and capture for our listeners. What does thrivability mean and, and the principles that you've described so well in your book? Okay, thank you. Thank you for the question. You know, when I, when I talk with groups and, and I, I receive this question, often I will say, you know what it is. You know what thrivability is, the ability to thrive. Let's talk about it. And I, I like to draw it out of, of the group, what, what that entails. And so at some level, we know what's needed, what's required if we are to thrive, if our organizations are to thrive or our communities. My particular approach is first, but this word is important. It's not about thriving. That is part of what we're after, but really it's about the system's ability to thrive over time, to, um, to generate that state in changing circumstances. So it's about cultivating the capacity of an organization or of a community to, to generate its own thriving. And more specifically, I define it as the informed intention and practice of creating the fertile conditions for life to thrive. Informed because if we're going to create the conditions for life to thrive, then we need to know what does that involve? What does that take? What does that require of us? And, and that can come from these principles. And, and I, I'll share what those principles are in just a minute, but it can come from science and biology as in my case, or it can come from indigenous wisdom from anywhere around the world. And there are probably other sources, but find your way in, get informed one way or another. Then set that as your intention that currently we set our sights on something far less than life's ability to thrive in our organizations, in our communities. And as a result, we're getting something catastrophically less than life's ability to thrive. So it's really important that we get clear. Productivity, profitability are good things to have, but really the goal is enabling life to thrive. And then you know, informed intention and practice, recognizing that this is an individual and collective life practice. Over time, we have to come together to figure out how do we do that? But now, how do we do it tomorrow? How do we do it in, in new circumstances? And, and I think of it as a practice of deepening in wisdom and compassion and the ability to sense what's needed and to respond with effective action. So that's, that's pretty big. <laughs> So when we take all of that in, this informed intention and practice, then really the, the immediate intention is to create every project, every organization, every community as a practice ground for developing that ability to sense what's needed and respond with effective action. Well, let me pause. That's kind of a, a, a big picture take on, on how I see thriveability. So you talked about, you know, we're currently we're in this mechanistic system or that's how we operate right this mechanistic model and that this is really about a shift to a living systems model so i know that you've got some principles around that so if you can speak to that that would be great i feel like this is part of the informed part of your informed intention and practice that if we can help ourselves and our listeners become more informed around what are those principles that will help guide us sure so for Every living system, whether it's your tourism operation or a community, 
a nation or our bodies or a rainforest, there are what I think of as life's universal design principles. So this is at the, the system level of what conditions we have to cultivate if we want outcomes like regeneration, like resilience, um, like individual thriving. So four things, four fertile conditions. And the first one is that there are individual parts like cells in our body or, or people in a, an organization. And we want as much diversity as possible. We want to invite that and support it so that people can share their gifts and be nourished in the process. The second thing is that those parts come together in patterns and structures of relationship. We want just enough stability, but most of all, we want um, information and decisions and resources and life to flow through. So we want to design the infrastructure of our conversations and our projects and our communities to support that. The third thing is that parts come together in patterns and structures of relationship in a way that creates an emergent whole. So a new level of life with new capabilities and characteristics that we don't find at the level of the parts. And that's the magic that we're after, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So you are more than just a collection of cells. You're, you're you and you have new capabilities like um, movement and thinking and, and your personality and feeling. And in our human communities, what enables that emergence and the whole to be greater than the sum of its parts is a shared purpose, a shared identity. So that acts as a magnet and holds us together. So we're no longer just a crowd of, of separate individuals. And we start to discover that we're capable of more. And then the fourth thing is that all of that is powered by life by whatever spark it is that animates us and makes us alive. And it's really important that we recognize the presence of life. Otherwise, we're left with the machine story that tells us we're the ones controlling everything. We can manage the machine. But when we have the humility and the wonder and openness to recognize there's something here, and we don't have to know what it is or agree or anything, but just to recognize life is able to self-organize, self-integrate parts into wholeness with more complexity, more grace and elegance and, and speed than we ever can, that part of the practice is to sense where there is aliveness and, and work with that sense where there's inspiration and, and beauty and emergence that's trying to come to the surface. That's, that's at the heart of the practice. So I'll give you a simple example in this conversation, we each have different perspectives, and I'm doing more than my share of talking, but you know, if, if we really had a, a wide open conversation, then each of us could bring diverse perspectives and, and be nourished in the process. And if we also had certain protocols of turn-taking, and if we speak the same language, and we can hear each other, if we could be together even better, you know, that would be the support of connective infrastructure. If our conversation is about something that we all really care about, that's important, that matters and makes a difference, then there's a shared purpose that will really bring things to life. And then if no one is choreographing it too tightly, and controlling who says what, when, but we can follow our inspiration, then we'll have those universal design principles all present. 
and and it will be an inspired conversation and we will be elevated and and we will say brilliant things that will surprise ourselves you know you have that experience where you say where did I come up with that so (laughs) this is the practice that we're after and it's it's human we've all had that experience but in our organizations in our communities when we bring that machine story we we block that block that capacity to work with life and in support of life that shared purpose when it's really about enabling life to thrive that's kind of the ultimate unifying purpose that we all really care about it's such a beautiful reframe and I remember the first time I heard you explain it on the presentation or something that you had done and just having that aha moment like oh yeah that makes so much sense it's it's so simple and intuitive that I think often people kind of brush it aside that it can't be that important because it's it's obvious once you hear it but it's so universal and and so profound if you really bring that into your your conversations, your projects, it, it opens up so much more possibility. And I think you also described what it can look like for us in terms of how we can come together and have these conversations, right? And that, that is part that is the first part of the work is the informed part is sitting down together with intention and having these conversations becomes our practice which takes time, right? And people often don't want or don't feel that we have that time, but if not now, when? Right, exactly. It, and, and time is, is really critical. Life sometimes requires time and, and cultivation. So if, if you don't yet feel wildly inspired, maybe you need more time. You haven't yet hit on the thing that is really calling out to you. So obviously we, on on this Good Awaits podcast, we're talking about regenerative tourism. So we'd love you to speak to how you feel thriveability is connected to this, this work and regenerative tourism and also what regenerative tourism means to you. Like how would you define it to someone who perhaps doesn't know what it is? So I, I talked about that guiding story that I noticed in previous phases of my career that tells us everything operates like a machine. And that story is still quite present and even dominant in tourism from what I can see. So the story seems to say tourism is a machine. It's like a conveyor belt, that the goal is just to get as many people through a place as possible and shake loose as much money from their pockets along the way (laughs) as we can. And what's alive in the place and in the people, what, uh, what would really serve the thrivability of a community is, is not very much taken into consideration. So instead, we're starting to see the, the damage that that approach does, and we're starting to ask for more. We're starting to ask for uh, community well-being as the primary deliverable of tourism and, and really, why would you do it otherwise? You know, why would you invite people over if what you're left with is, is a worse condition than when they, when they first arrived. So in addition to community well-being, we're, we're starting to see this term regenerative tourism as well as the goal. And something can only be regenerative if it's alive. A machine can't be regenerative. It's, it's sort of synonymous with healing and only living systems are able to generate themselves and regenerate themselves, heal themselves. So this term is implicitly 
recognizing that we need to shift stories from a, a mechanistic story to a story rooted in life and living systems. So that's sort of the first invitation into that informed intention and practice I was talking about. It, it also invites us to see that our role changes from managing a tourism destination to cultivating a hosting community being gardeners and stewards of the life within a community in all its complexity and, and including the visitors as they come. So uh, it, it's a, a really important shift in particular for regional tourism organizations or national tourism organizations to seeing themselves as hosting the hosts and stewarding the community's ability to thrive. So what regenerative tourism means to me essentially is thrivable tourism. It's tourism that is aligned with life, oriented around life's ability to thrive, and in which the approach is fundamentally grounded in the community, in, in bringing the community together to explore who are we together? What do we care about? What do we have to offer the, the world in its need for regeneration or healing? And, and how do we need to tend to our own healing so that we can host others? So most of all, for me, regenerative tourism is an invitation into some, some bigger questions and, and deeper conversations, and that requires courage. But there's, there's so much benefit to it. There's so much more resilience at the other side of it. I, I shared recently that um, article about how Maslow got it all wrong. And that, that seems relevant here, that Maslow's pyramid would tell us that we come into life alone and, and vulnerable, and we have to scratch and claw to take care of our basic needs. And, and we climb our way up through some belonging and, and then to self-actualization. It's a very individualistic um, and, and deficit-based approach. But it turns out that he took initial inspiration from the Blackfoot nation, an indigenous nation, um, not far from where I live in Montreal. So in, in that model, the starting point is you arrive self-actualized, you have gifts to share, you are born into a community that will take care of your, your needs and that offers belonging. And from there, you're then in a position to contribute to the tribe and also to the perpetuation of the culture. And in all of that, they don't even have a word for poverty. Closest word is without family. So it's, it's more resilient to ground ourselves in a, a story of community, in, in a conversation that weaves us together over time. That is more inherently regenerative and more thrivable. So this is sort of the, the nature, the underlying nature of this shift from seeing ourselves as lonely competing operators of a machine to deeply embedded in life and community and together exploring, together being in this practice of stewarding our common space and, and story and identity. I, I, I was really inspired by the example of, of we are one in Wanaka. Wow. That uh, used to be called, I think. And in reading their story, kind of their origin story three years ago, it was so clear to me that they 
applied these universal design principles. They brought people together and welcomed the diversity of members of the community. They uh, convened people around a meaningful set of questions. And I don't know that they named the questions exactly, but, but something around what if we could be one New Zealand? What would that look like? And what would that change? And, and how can we move towards that? This is really important and meaningful. They created really skillful um, relational infrastructure, the ways that they brought people together in conversation uh, invited that flow of, of information and ideas and, um, and contributions. And, and there was um, a lot of space for inspiration and celebration and beauty and movement and art throughout all of it. And it, it led to such a level of inspiration that they've in three years, um, generated, and I say they've generated, they've created the conditions for the emergence of a multitude of projects that are self-organizing, right? It's, it's people showing up saying, I care about this, and, and here's a space where I can help to make it happen, and, and let me repeat this pattern of, of invitation and friendship. They've had these three summits in three years and in total brought together, it's almost 4,000 people and all of this with no budget, zero budget behind all of it. So that's how powerful these patterns are to generate more aliveness, more possibility, more thriving. Yeah, it's a wonderful example. And we'll hear more about that actually, because we're interviewing uh, one of the women who is highly involved in that. So Let's talk a little bit about language, Michelle, because if we have a shared language and the language of living systems versus the mechanical model, can you speak to that a bit for us, please? I can. And, and I'd love to know your thoughts as well from within the, the industry or the sector. But generally, I think um, we could do without the word tourism. I think that um, gives, it reinforces that mechanistic story, it invites us show up as tourists, as um, sort of greedy, demanding, self-centered people, rather than as guests, maybe grateful pilgrims even. This idea of managing destinations, likewise, seems to keep us stuck in a, a mechanistic story in which we can manage a destination. It's something that's complex and alive, so that's really impossible. Instead, we can steward, can cultivate we can host and, and host the hosts. In fact, when I talk about thriveability, I, I offer suggestions for how to move forward, things that you can do. And one is very simple, and that's to pay attention to the language you use. And when you find yourself using mechanistic language, the language of physics, that's a, a, a signal that it's, it, it can be useful to explore swapping in organic terminology and see what new possibilities come into view. And I'll give you one example from tourism from a local organization in New Zealand whose strategy over 10 years, I think it is, starts with build the foundation and then build momentum and then um, accelerate. So I offered this sort of invitation to them 
those are all terms from physics. What new possibilities would come into view if instead you explored preparing the ground and planting seeds and gathering the harvest? Because how long can you accelerate? Can you do that forever? And, and do you want to <laughs> keep accelerating and accelerating? But, you know, you can gather the harvest forever, really. So those are the kinds of things that, that come up for me. I think we're really privileged in New Zealand to have a word from Te Rao Māori, uh, which is manaakitanga, which is about hospitality and welcoming and I think it's such a beautiful word and I'd love to see that be used more in tourism space, even though you wouldn't translate that word as tourism, but perhaps that's the issue, right? That it shouldn't be tourism that we're trying to translate. It's it's about what does hospitality or manakitanga really mean and, and what does that look like? We'd like to ask you about COVID. Uh, obviously, the pandemic's had an enormous impact on our industry and I think it's changed a lot of things for us in, in New Zealand, but, but the whole world and New Zealand's in a very privileged position at the moment to be a lot more on the road to recovery than, than many other places. But we'd love to know a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted you and your work and maybe something surprising that's come out of this pandemic for you. It's been... It, I almost feel guilty saying it, but it's been a, a really wonderful experience for me. I know there's so much tragedy and hardship in the world, and especially in tourism. For me, after working for 20 years to invite people into this new conversation, I'm finding over the past year that people are more, more open and more ready than ever before to explore a new story and, and new ways of being. And in tourism more than anywhere, it seems that it's been sort of a necessary shock and a, and a pause to uh, see the impact that tourism has, um, maybe fresh eyes, and to reflect on what else is possible, to reflect on what really matters, to take in the severity of the situation, the global situation, really pause and, and take it in. And there have been more and more reports that let us know how, how dire things are. So I see, especially in places that have been still in lockdown, there's uh, almost a desperation for this experience to mean something, for it to have led to a real turning point. So I, I, I think there's, there's kind of, a, we're, we're holding our breath. Will we take advantage of this opportunity and, and make real change? And I'm, I'm hoping that we will. And, and I, I'm, I am hopeful. I do see that this new openness and new conversations are leading to, to some real change. We spoke with Anna Pollock in, in episode one about the idea that perhaps the pandemic is uh, portal which is something that Aaron Hattie Roy wrote or that it's a punctuation point how would you how would you describe it in that way mm -hmm. I describe it very similarly she and I've had lots of conversations about it and I, I hosted a four-week learning journey called pandemic as portal so there you go. <laughs> I, I, I speak in very similar terms but it's just it is such an opportunity and a wake-up call most of all there's a lot of conversations happening on regenerative tourism 
And we'd love to know what examples you're seeing of promising change that are happening, uh, particularly in New Zealand, but that could be globally as well. You've already shared the example from Wanaka, which is uh, really insightful. But examples that are, are promising in terms of how we're going to come out of this and how the pandemic might be a portal for us to, to see a new, a new uh, industry or, or visitor economy. Okay. So uh, it seems that New Zealand is full of inspiring examples. There are two others that um, I really have loved learning about. Um, the, the second one is the Ruapehu uh, Fanau Transformation Project that Rach Hoskins told us about. And again, I see in that story those same patterns that there was a powerful convening question and and purpose. Who are we together? What do we care about? What does thriving look like? And and how can we be guided by the wisdom of the mountain? This was sort of their, um, the magnet that held them together. And within that, many voices were invited in many ways of contributing to community thriving. There was, again, very skillful hosting of that exploration in the conversations, that relational infrastructure. And, and there was wonderful inspiration. And, and in particular, from the wisdom of the mountain, I find that um, this is one way to invite life's inspiration in, to, to sort of look to nature. I, I do a lot of work with farmers as well. And I find that soil is, is such a good teacher of those patterns. And, and that's a little bit too long a story to go into, but I can just share that more and more often after sharing how those patterns show up in soil, I will ask a group, what would soil do? Now, what would soil do in this case? And, and it's, it's wonderfully sort of guiding. So in their case, uh, in Ropehu, they ask, what would the mountain do? You know, what's the guidance from, from nature? So again, like uh, we are one in Wanaka, that, simple and low budget project has generated all kinds of local projects, including tourism offerings. So there's something about recognizing that we have to come together in our community to to prepare the soil, to cultivate the soil, and we will all benefit. You know, so I I know I'm speaking in very big terms, and there may be people listening who who just want to know, how do I do my operation better? And that is my answer. You, you cannot do it alone. You cannot find your way to resilience alone. You have to come together and, and cultivate the soil of your community. This, this experience of COVID has shown that without community, we are, are too vulnerable to crisis. And, and crisis is only going to continue. So... Um, there's, there's another example, and, and I, I could name others if you'd like, but um, I think those two are really, really wonderful. So that, that leads nicely, I think, Michelle, into, you know, as we're talking about what our vision for a reimagined visitor economy would be, you know, would we even use the word visitor economy? You know, but, but turning this and in, this informed intention into practice. But I'd be curious about your, your vision of what this would look like for our tourism economy. Yes, there's something useful about central coordination, but local implementation. 
So that there is one conversation that is happening at a national level that's, that's really supportive of that convergence and, and energy that comes along with it. But every community needs also the freedom to self-organize what that looks like locally. If Wanaka had tried to coordinate Ruapehu's project, that would have been terrible. <laughs> but we can take inspiration from those universal patterns and then do it in our own way, in our own places. So what I hope is that, that industry and communities will carry forward that beautiful report, We Are Aotearoa. It's, it's such a beautiful articulation of everything I've been describing and more that what will be regenerative in this work is to ground the work in community. The way I read that report, that's the essential message. So imagine if everyone could really gather around that vision with support for local implementation, local explorations about what it means for us in our place and, and how we want to enact that. And we can take inspiration from each other's stories. There can be a, a website where projects are described and, and the journey people make from the mechanistic conveyor belt story to the soil building community way of being. I think that's the, the vision that I'm dreaming of. And, and it seems so possible too. <laughs> and it does feel possible, especially when we're having conversations like this. It feels like what you were talking about, about what emerges from a conversation like this when people bring their different, you know, divergent perspectives or ideas or backgrounds and, and what can come out of that. Um, I think one of the things we'll be interested to see with this podcast is that we think some of our listeners might be looking for a how-to guide or a, you know, how do I tick the boxes and you touched on this already, but without giving a how-to guide, um, what would your call to action be for our listeners? Well, there's the, the, those two things. So the first one is uh, when you find yourself using mechanistic terms, see if there are organic alternatives, life-aligned alternatives. Um, the, the more involved thing that I advise people to do is to ask bigger questions and um, have more courageous conversations. So to really look within and see what you are passionate about, what is that convening question that you care about and, and see if there are others. Look around, ask around, see if there are others who might have the courage to engage in that conversation too, as they did in Wanaka, as they did in Ropehu. And it doesn't have to be taking on all of transformation of Ropehu or all of we are one New Zealand. It can be just, I don't know, what if this what is the healing actually? You know, regeneration is fundamentally a synonym for healing. So what's the healing that's needed in our spot right here? And, and see if you can have a, an honest and open exploratory conversation about that. And if I, I learned anything from Simon Phillips in Bay of Plenty, it's that gratitude is, is really fundamental as well. So to come in with a spirit of gratitude. Yeah, it's, it's not going to sound like a, uh, a how-to, but honestly, it's that Margaret Mead quote that um, there's nothing more powerful than a small group of committed citizens. This is the only way that change happens. So you have to be courageous enough to, to be that first citizen you know, and to invite others together. And to create the space and time 
to do that, right? That it's not going to happen overnight. And that's where the questions, that's where the, the request for a how-to comes from, I think, is we want a quick fix. I've even had operators say that to me, just tell us what to do. So it's that change of mindset that if we're creating fertile conditions, like preparing the soil, it's not a quick fix. Right. That's the danger of coordination also, because it seems uh, so quick and, and efficient and handy. So there's a, a level of coordination at a national level that is helpful, but it really needs to be done in a spirit of stewardship, of, of supporting local communities in creating their own fertile conditions. So there's, there's kind of a caveat there. Be careful not to engineer the living system. Nice. That's fantastic. So I think that's given us a lot to think about, um, a lot hopefully for our listeners to think about. If our listeners want to learn more about you, Michelle, where can they learn more about you? I've got um, two websites. One is michelleholiday.com and the other is ageofthriveability.com. Those are our two good places. I'm all over social media. My handle is at thriveability on Twitter. Otherwise, it's Michelle Holiday. I'm always happy to talk. Please don't, don't hesitate. Well, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And we'll make sure that um, all that contact information is in our show notes as well. So this has been fantastic. We really, really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Very, very grateful for you taking the time to do this. It's, uh, it's been great. Mm, thank you. So listeners, we've come to the segment of our podcast in each episode where Josie and I reflect on what our guests have talked about and we try to find some wisdom or some takeaways for our listeners. I think having just had this conversation with Michelle, perhaps Josie, it makes sense for us to start calling this reflection segment our harvest. Yeah, I love that. We talked a lot about the importance of language and, and I found it very inspiring the way Michelle slips this living systems language into the way that she speaks. And I think we can be more conscious about the language that we're using on the podcast as well. Yeah. And try and really uh, speak in terms of living systems, because that's really what we were talking about in this episode was to really start to think about ourselves, our businesses, our communities, as living systems, as ecosystems. And that's quite a shift from the mechanistic model that we've all operated under. So, so let's talk a little bit about what that is. When she talks about a living system, Michelle really talks about four components to that. Yeah, I think it's good to, to rewind a little bit because it is huge what she mm. is offering and there's so much value to be found in it if we can understand it and translate it into a tourism context. So there's sort of four parts to that living systems model, right? Which is... Mm. Four principles, four right? principles, yeah. Universal principles, of, of living systems. So you've got the divergent parts, the relationships and structures, the whole or the emergent whole. And then there's the fourth one, which is life, right? Yeah. And that's it's a real shift, I think, from how we normally think about our businesses or our communities is that there is this presence of life whatever we call it, the spark, this energy that exists and that it's important for us to acknowledge the existence of that if we're going to truly see or start to see our communities or our businesses or ourselves even as living systems. 
that to me is a major part of the shift in thinking. Yeah, I think if we're going to think about tourism as a living system or our, our communities in this way, then we can see the divergent parts as our diversity within the within the, I was going to say industry, but maybe ecosystem, <laughs> ecosystem. of tourism. Within the tourism ecosystem, we have such diversity in terms of business types, business sizes. We have diverse communities as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talked with Kristen Dunn about the community DNA. And mm. I think a beautiful part of this is that's, that's different and diverse depending on where you are in the country as well, right? Right, which is why one checklist or one set model doesn't work for every community because each community is so unique. I mean, Michelle really spoke to that, right? Like Wanaka versus Ruapehu, very different communities. Mm. One model wouldn't work in the other, but the principles are applicable to every community. So we have divergent parts and not just in our tourism ecosystem, but across different uh, ecosystems, or if you look at your, you know, I'm trying not to use me- mechanical language. I was going to say sectors, right? Because we're so good at speaking in silos or thinking about ourselves in silos. Mm. But who else in our community across different industries, you know, they're all part of that larger community ecosystem. So many different sectors are touched by by tourism, which really puts some some weight on the work that we do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also highlights the need for these structures and relationships that brings us together, right? Yeah. So before we get to that, I also want to talk about the richness and the diversity. Mm. Like Michelle was really clear that having so different voices in the conversation is critical because that's, it's that diversity of the different parts. Everyone comes with a different idea and a different mindset and, and has value to add. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that takes us then to relationships and the infrastructure. And so in terms of our tourism ecosystem, you know, that could be our RTOs, Mm. right? Yeah, definitely. I think the RTOs have a role to play in in bringing people together and providing that structure, not necessarily needing to have the answers. I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of this work is that it's just creating space and creating some structure in order to allow those answers to emerge. Yeah, that's right. From the people in the conversation. Uh, I've had this conversation myself with Hamilton Waikato, where I've said to them, you know, I as an operator am not looking to them to have all the answers. That's not how a living system works. What I would love for them to do for us, and they've started to do it, which is fantastic, is to create these gatherings where we're coming together to start to have the conversations. And that's where Kristen talked about, that's what they did in Bay of Plenty. I know other regions are doing that. And there's a national level piece to this, right, as well in terms of that infrastructure while acknowledging that each community is different and unique and needs to needs to create this themselves and do this work themselves on a national level there can be support for that the the national level of coordination is um, done in the spirit of stewardship of supporting what the local communities are doing in creating their own ecosystems or fertile conditions for for their ecosystems to thrive and then from that we have this emergent whole mm-hmm. that comes and I think Michelle offers that perhaps that emergent whole is a sense of shared purpose, which has come through quite strongly in in all the episodes so far, actually. Yeah. Thinking about talking with Nadine about what keeps her going and saying that it's this this deep sense of purpose and meaning. And for Kristen, it's that shared sense of purpose and connection to place that got Blay of Plenty to where they are today. So I think this idea of of that being the emergent whole is quite powerful. 
And all of this happens because of the life spark that mm. exists in a living system, right? If we look at any flourishing or thriving ecosystem, we can see that there is something intangible that we can't really put our words around, but it is life. So she talked about having a conversation, right? When you have a really great conversation mm -hmm. and you start bouncing ideas back and forth between people and then all of a sudden someone says something and this amazing idea comes out and you're like, wow, where'd that come from? Yeah, I think that's it. It's, I think a lot of people have had that experience where an idea comes out of seemingly nowhere and what's missing in this mechanistic model is the acknowledgement that that's there, whether we like it or not, that yeah. that life is there, that Modi is there, and that by acknowledging that, we have a lot, a lot to gain and a lot to learn. And and I think Michelle would say nurturing it too. Yes, you know, acknowledging and nurturing it, allowing yeah. for it to for that to come through in so many different forms of expression. You know, I think it's important to talk about. She, she talks about this informed intention and practice to uh, the informed intention and practice of creating the fertile conditions for life to thrive. So do we want to try and break that down a bit, Josie? Yeah, I think that's, that's a big piece that underlies the whole conversation with Michelle. And I like the word practice because it's about the fact that this is an ongoing process. There's no end point. There's no regenerative tourism goal it's a it's a practice of continuing to nourish the conditions for life to thrive and that will change and develop over time so whether we whether we learn about what living systems look like or what a flourishing community looks like whether we take that knowledge from science or biology or she said from indigenous wisdom as well you know we have examples of it in new zealand we can inform ourselves right and that's the first step on an individual basis to try and inform ourselves so that we can start to see our communities, our industry as a living ecosystem. And then being really intentional and, and seeing all of this as a practice of deepening our thinking. Also just connecting back to our first episode with Anna Pollock. At the end of that episode, we made an offering to listeners to think about what does a flourishing community look like in my place? And that question is, is a part of this informed intention and practice. Michelle says if we're going to create the conditions for life to thrive, then we need to understand what that looks like. What does thriving look like? And so part of the practice is trying to uncover that. With others in our communities, right? Yeah. Through these conversations. Yeah. yeah. You know, if we're taking this living systems model and we're saying that if we want to see tourism through a living systems model, we want to see it truly regenerative, then our role changes, right? From, she talks about from managing a tourism destination to cultivating a hosting community, to being gardeners and stewards of the life within our community. So whether that's at a regional level, at a business level, that we're all involved in the stewardship, that's our practice, our intentional practice is stewarding our businesses and our communities that we are part of. And I think that refers back to what Nadine talked about in the last episode mm -hmm. about this manakitanga for our tourism people as well, taking care of our tourism community. She talked about manakitanga and are we really taking care of our people in this industry? Mm. And that's a really good place to start, right? before we even think about taking care of our guests, we need to be taking care of each other. So I think that's perhaps that's our offering for listeners for this episode, Debbie, is to reflect on this living systems approach, but to come at it from a place of, to use Michelle's words, wisdom and compassion and also gratitude, right? We, t we touched on, yeah. on that as well. Yep. 
Nice. I like it. So we want to thank Michelle so much for her time. There is so much in this episode, I think, um, that it, it can be a lot to try to try and digest. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, that's part of this process. Uh, it, that's part of the informed part of this process is really trying to understand all of this. So um, we hope you can stick with us through this and be part of these conversations. We will be revisiting these principles and these concepts now in subsequent conversations um, and reflections on harvests as we go through this podcast. So um, this is part of the journey and we are delighted that you're joining us. So thank you listeners for joining us on this episode of Good Awaits. This is resonated with you or you feel called to get involved then please do send us your takeaways we'd really love to hear from you this is a process of collective discovery so we really appreciate your feedback and input and this podcast is being produced entirely by volunteers we are trying to be of service to these conversations so if you're finding value in it and you want to support us to be able to continue this work then we do have a give a little page where you can make a donation you can go to givealittle.co.nz and search for Good Awaits Podcast. And all donations from that page will go to the operating costs of the podcast. And we thank you graciously for any donations that you make. You can get in touch with us via our website, which is goodawaits.podbean.com. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Good Awaits. Our episodes of Good Awaits are out every Wednesday morning, New Zealand time. And if you would like to be notified every time an episode is released, then you can subscribe on your podcast app. You can also leave us a review or rating on your app. We'd really love to receive your feedback. We want to give special thanks to both the New Zealand Awaits team and the Good Travel team, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Erin Carnes for your amazing graphics design. Thank you so much. And Clary Macklin for your music, the jingle. We love it. And your hours of production for every episode. We can't thank you enough. Josie, I want to thank you too, because you are also spending hours editing in addition to all of the other aspects of uh, creating this podcast and making it happen. So I really appreciate you. Thank you, Debbie. And I also want to say thank you to you for all of the time that you're giving and energy that you're giving to the production of this podcast. So thanks again, listeners, for tuning in to Good Awaits. It's great to have you join us as we harvest the stories of our regenerative tourism journey in New Zealand. 